Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiska talking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy Gene Hoagland. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar. This is Alan Tecchio from Autumn Hour, Hades Nonfiction. Watchtower, Minds, Mirrors, and other assorted bands, and you're listening to Mars Attacks Radio. Hey, Metalheads and Headbangers, this is Doro Passion. Hi, it's Conrad of Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yow! Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> Hello, this is Dave Reffitt, and you're listening to Mars Attacks with my good buddy Victor. Crank it up. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera. This is Vinny Apsey from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is John Arch from Mathea, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records, and you are listening to Mars Attacks.
Welcome, one and all, to episode 57 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and we kick things off with Zero Span by Charred Walls of the Damned, coming off of their album Cold Winds on Timeless Days. And uh, this episode has two very special interviews, one with John Arch, John Archambay from Arch Matheos, and Richard Christie of Charred Walls of the Damned, a legendary drummer who's played with Death, Iced Earth, and a bunch of other bands as well. Um, He's also part of the Howard Stern Show. Uh, Jumping back to John, John was the original lead singer in Fate's Warning. So we have both of these interviews. They were actually conducted a few months ago in November, to be exact. And, I'm sorry, late October. So it's been a few months. But uh, as I mentioned in previous episodes, that sort of works... Uh, to my favor as well, because when an album first comes out, everyone is trying to do press for that album, and you split the fan base. You know, you get all these people uh, interviewing, you know, the same people essentially. Um, I'm not dumb enough to think that you know I'm the only fish out there. I'm a small fish in a very, 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 very big you know, ocean of other podcasts. So uh, even though we didn't do this right away, uh, hopefully people that haven't checked, uh, you know, the Charred Walls album out or the Arch Matheos album out, go out and do so now because maybe this is a reminder, you know, uh, after a few months that these albums are out there. Uh, And again, maybe there were, you know, 25 interviews out there and you don't know which interview to listen to and this one hopefully sort of sticks out there and it makes you guys listen to the interview and get turned on to you know these albums or anything else that we play during the show um so yeah and i also have to say that both sympathetic resonance and um Cold Winds on Timeless Days are two of my favorite albums from 2011 if you haven't checked them out Please do so. Um, What else? want to just mention that we're working on the RSS feed for iTunes. Uh, It's been working shoddy for some time. Uh, Long story short, uh, John from Iron City Rocks, who is a web developer, um, he also, uh, well, he does work for Nick Cantonese from Black Label Society and a few other people. Um, he's helping me set up a new RSS feed, and uh, hopefully we'll get that taken care of shortly. If you are subscribed on iTunes and you're getting an error, we're doing everything we can to get this turned around as soon as possible. In the meantime, you can stream or download the episodes from uh, MarsAttacksRadio.com. If you shoot me over an email as well, you can send that to input at MarsAttacksRadio.com. Uh, I'll make sure and send you the actual updated feed. Uh, we're just waiting for iTunes to automatically update this, or we're you know, putting the steps in motion so that it automatically updates it. In the meantime, you can manually subscribe to the podcast uh, via iTunes if you'd prefer to do it that way. If not, hopefully within the next few days this will all be taken care of. Um, what else? want to also remind you, about the Classic Albums column. The last podcast, which coincided with the Classic Albums column, centered on Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. We had all types of comments, good, bad, and indifferent, from a bunch of different people. 
Richard Christie has actually provided his comments for a future or a few future episodes of the Classic Albums column. Uh, so has John Arch. Uh, the thing here is with the Classic Albums column, it's 30 some odd albums that uh, originally started on the list. Uh, we're rolling one episode out per month. So, you know, do the math. This is going to take a few years to all come out. And, you know, if uh, people keep digging it, maybe we'll extend things. Uh, Initially, how this came about is just based on conversations that I've had with people that I've been interviewing. You know, um, when you're done interviewing them, maybe you're at a show or maybe even on the phone, you know, they start to ask you about, you know, what you're doing with the shows, other people that you've interviewed. And, you know, you just start talking about music. And, um, you know, based on that, through this list together, and some of them are maybe head scratchers, some of them are no-brainers, and some of them were selected because the artist told me that they didn't like one of their, you know, uh, more favorite albums, or more famous albums, I should say, uh, due to the mix. Um, So as a result, there was something else that was selected. But uh, all of these albums, in my opinion, sort of were game-changers. They did something to help uh, push hard rock or metal, to help it evolve, to help it go someplace that it wasn't before. Uh, So they're all equally important. All of the bands are important in the history of metal. So uh, there you go. Uh, And what else? Uh, I also want to mention that this year is shaping up to be a great, great year for hard rock and metal. A bunch of really cool things have come my way already um let's see let's get into some music i actually received this yesterday let's play something off of the new overkill this will be out at the end of next month let's play a snippet of the first song off of the electric age the name of this track is come and get it
little bit of Come and Get It coming off of the Electric Age by Overkill. The song is plenty longer, just to put it at that. Uh, This song is, I'll tell you right now, let me switch back to iTunes for a second here. This track is actually over six minutes long, so we just played a little bit of it. Have some very cool chanting there, which you know is going to be predominant at any festival that they play. If they do another Kill Fest, they're going to have everyone going nuts singing those chanting parts there. So, uh, yeah, definitely a really, really good album. A continuation of what they did with Ironbound. This is, you know, a step further. This album is really, really solid. has a lot of really cool tracks on it. Um... Just tracks that stick out to me right off the bat after the first few listens. Aside from Come and Get It, Black Days is really cool. Save Yourself, Old Wounds, New Scars, and The Closer, Good Night. Those are all really, really cool tracks. Uh, also, I'm playing the crap out of the new Kill Devil Hill. Uh, we interviewed Vinny Apice a little while ago. We were able to interview Rex Brown last week, and we're going to be interviewing Vinny again this week regarding the album. Uh, let's play a little bit off of the the album opener. The name of this track is War Machine.
War Machine, the lead-off track on the self-titled debut by Kill Devil Hill. Track kicks ass, so does the album. It's got so many cool songs. Let's do the same thing as with the Overkill. Uh, tracks that really stick out, aside from War Machine, Voodoo Doll is really, really cool. Time and Time Again, which is up there on YouTube uh, and SoundCloud. Uh, up in Flames and The Closer, Revenge, has a real Zeppelin feel to the beginning of it. Uh, what else? Let's get into a little monument. Spoke to Peter Ellis as well, former White Wizard and The More I See lead singer. He's got this track, or this EP coming out. The first single will be this track that we're going to get into. It is called Fatal Attack.
a little monument with Fatal Attack. That EP is actually going to have a guest appearance by Richie Faulkner, the current lead guitarist of Judas Priest, or one of the two guitarists of Judas Priest, I should say. Moving forward here, uh, another new band with another good friend of ours who uh, lends his comments to the classic albums column. Uh, and actually, this sort of ties into Arch Matthias as well. Uh, Ron Oresti is part of this band. So is Jason Bittner of Shadows Fall. The name of this band is Dark Day Sunday. The name of this track is Highway to Gods. Fight, fight, kill another thing Fight, fight, we're back to die 
There you go, a little bit of Dark Day Sunday. If you go to their Facebook page, you can actually download that entire track. So let's get into the John Arch portion of the interview. There are a bunch of interesting things that we touched upon with this interview. Not only the the um, excuse me, Arch Matheus album, but also Fate's Warning, uh, other bands that he had tried out for as well, uh, and um, and yeah, and that's pretty much it. I I have this album. I was given the MP3 version by the label, uh, but I went out and bought the vinyl. The vinyl actually is pretty cool. Because it also includes the EP that John recorded a few years ago with uh, Jim Matthews. So, you know, it's almost fitting that they included both of these, you know, together. Because, um, you know, Jim and John are, are both on these tracks. So, really, really cool album. Um, you know, prog isn't, or prog metal isn't always my thing. You know, it has to be something very special to catch my attention. And Sympathetic Resonance definitely did it. And I'm going to mention that right off the bat with this interview. And um, as I'm going through the vinyl here, it's actually a double vinyl. Uh, so it's two songs per side. And then side D is the bonus, a Twist of Fate EP. So uh, they're all fairly short songs. Um the shortest song is 5 minutes 22. The longest song is Stained Glass Sky, which is one of the coolest tracks to come out in 2011. It's just 4 seconds shy of 14 minutes. So, there you have it. Uh, in any event, we're going to get into the track Midnight Serenade, and then we'll jump right into the interview with John Arch.
Okay, so right off the bat, this is probably the um, the the biggest ass kissing uh, point of the interview. <laughs> um, I'm not a prog guy, and I think that sympathetic resonance is one of the best albums that's come out this year. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I didn't expect, you know, once once I hear something's prog, I'm always iffy because, um, you know, hearing someone play 50 million notes can either be really appealing or really a turnoff. So I listened to the album and I listened to it a bunch of times just to really get a grasp on it. It's very complex, it's very dynamic, and it's very easy to listen to. So I think that someone that isn't, you know, into prog can easily you know, jump into this album head first. Well, that's interesting. Um, and I'm glad you said that because I guess, yeah, d- depending on what your definition of prog is and, and the music is, you know, it really changed quite a bit. And I just was discussing this with someone else recently. Uh, one, one of the questions they asked me is what I thought of the prog scene today. And it's like, well, it depends on what you define as prog, but <laughs> what, what right. I, what I'm hearing, like, uh, there's no question there's like an amazing amount of talent as far as technical ability and uh, playing a million notes and the drumming. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I'm blown away by that. But then on the other token, what I like to listen to is uh, I like melodies. And, uh, um, right. you know, if, if you can mix some technicality along with melodies, then I, you probably have my attention. So I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Right, and that you hit, you know, you hit it right on the head there. Um, for me, no matter what type of metal or rock or whatever you're listening to, if there isn't a melody that can, you know, sort of, uh, you know, get stuck in your head, sort of get you sucked into the, sucked into the music, it really doesn't do anything for me. So I agree with you 100. percent Okay. Yes. Great. Um, what made you? want to come back and record this album? Well, I guess it's probably a combination of things. Um, first and foremost, um, going back to A Twist of Fate being an, e- an EP, um, I always kind of w- was hoping that that would have ended up being a full album, but because of the uh, time constraints and Jim's work schedule, it ended up being an EP. Um, to, so to follow that, a lot of people have asked over you know, the years, you know, when's the, you know, the follow-up album going to be? And so that was one reason I, I wanted to do a full, a full album. And um, I guess secondly, of course, Jim approached me and, and asked me if I would be interested in listening to you know, some material that he had. Um, and I guess originally, you know, it's no secret that I was slated for uh, Fate's Warning release. Um, for some unforeseen reasons that are none of my business, and I didn't even ask questions. Ray was not able to commit at this time um, to to helping Jim write and, and being involved in the uh, the writing and recording process. So Jim asked me if I was simply you know willing to listen to some material that he had, and being that it's Jim and. Uh, you know, I always feel comfortable working with Jim and in that environment because it's not nothing's rushed. You know, we take our time. We're comfortable with each other and in the uh, studio setting. So, you know what? Now is a good time in my life. Uh, I was going through a whole bunch of shit, you know, that like, throws that you know, blindsides you with. And I needed to keep my head busy anyway. So, reluctantly, I went up to Jim's uh, studio and just sat down and listened to some of the things. I said, you know what? Let me take some of this home. You know, he, he copied some, uh, <clears throat> you know, it burned me uh uh, a CD with you know some some things uh, compositions that were um, 
I don't want to say rough form. They were pretty pretty well on their way to being complete as far as, you know, the way Jim envisioned them. So I took them home and listened to them, and little by little I kind of got involved with it and, um, you know, one line at a time started writing some melodies and, and, and started writing some uh, lyrics. And before you know it, I mean, you know, we had two songs were well on our way and we liked the direction that it was going. And so that's kind of... Uh, the birth of this thing it's uh it just was timing and um uh we had no idea what, where we we're going with this or whether it was going to be something that we we're going to be successful at because it's been you know quite a few years since we we've worked together but um you know after the first couple of songs it started coming together so we just kept at it okay so uh he sort of had a few of these tracks fleshed out before you even came into the project or were all six tracks more or less in in a rough format before you joined the project. Uh, no, um, I, I would think. Let me see. Um, I know um, "Neurotically Wire" was the first song that I worked on, so that was almost complete. But I, um, you know, we both contributed, um, you know, to finishing that that song up towards the end. So that was almost a, a complete composition. But of course, that's without lyrics and without melody lines, um, right? Which I had to after I, you know, listened to it a billion times. Um, and then Midnight Serenade uh, was was pretty much all Jim. Yeah, that was all uh, finished. Um, then On the Fence came next, and that was kind of a mostly Jim, but then there were missing connecting parts and, and, and refrains, and that was more of a collaboration of us working together. And then um, from there, we kind of knew what direction we were going in. It was, you know, heavy, and it was very, I guess, progressive, if you want to use that term again, which I'm so sick of. I don't know what else, what other term to use. But, um, <laughs> right. you know, it was definitely, you know, high energy for a couple of old guys. And um, so I guess Jim, from that point, knew what direction the album was going. And so he started, you know, you know, finishing up On the Fence, and then um, Any Given Day came along. And then um, the middle section, uh, Strangers Like Us, um, and then uh, <clears throat> the last song, Incense and Murder, is something that I had been working on for a while, uh, kind of like Cheyenne on A Twist of Fate. And I brought that to Jim, and Jim helped me arrange and, and put the finishing touches on Incense and Murder. So that's pretty much how the album did fall together. Okay. And one interesting point that you made there was, you know, whether the, to make this an arch uh, Matthias album or to make it Fate's Warning you hear so many bands you know Black Sabbath comes to name for example where you know the label forces a specific name onto a project and it's cool that you know you guys didn't have to go with a name if you didn't feel that if you didn't feel the need to use the Fate's Warning label behind you right right you know we did uh, we did toy with it for for a little while and, uh, you know, Mill Blade thought it would, might be a good idea to use it because it's, you know, a recognizable name. Right. And, you know, obviously for, you know, um, for business reasons, promotional reasons, it's much easier to do that. But, you know, I think we, we thought a little bit deeper than that. And mm -hmm. uh, there was some legal connotations. Uh, but more so, um, you know, I guess I, I'm glad that we went the route that we did. Um, I think our names are, you know, especially Jim's, maybe not mine so much, but I, I'm glad that we used, it would have been nice if we could come up with a band name that was more interesting, obviously. But, you know, we, we went around and around and, and for months, but, you know, not, we never came up with something that really fit what we were doing. You know, nothing that 
you know that feeling when you you come up with something that you're really excited about. Okay, this represents right. the music, and and you know it's something that um, you know be proud to have a name like this. We never came up with anything like that, so we thought it was best instead of trying to force something or to use the Fates Warning um, name, it's just to use Arch Mateos because it, it is indicative of you know a, a project, and that's you know really Fates Warning at you know at this point you know Ray Alder is the singer for Fates Warning he has been for years. Um, and I don't know. I guess for a myriad of reasons, it was best that we left that alone. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about the other musicians that are involved in the project? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, everyone knows Jim Mathias, uh, you know, pretty much the uh, uh, one of the founding members of Fate's Warning. And uh, Frank Arresti has a long history. He came in um, uh, after Spectre Within, um, and he's involved. And uh, Bobby Jarzombek, of course, um, who plays drums for uh, Fate's Warning and uh, Joey Vera, um, and you know what we really—I didn't even consider who would be playing on this album at the point of writing. You know, doing the writing process, we were just kind of focused at the task at hand, writing the music. And then when it came time, it's like, okay, you know, um, it was just like a kind of a natural transition where Jim said, you know, look at—I um, had already actually he had already been working on you know a few of these songs with um bobby uh, so he had already had vested time in in this so that was you know kind of a natural uh way to go i mean it wouldn't have been right to, to um to go to use another you know drummer and it's just you know why what's the point i mean he's just such an awesome drummer and right. um everything just kind of fell into place you know all the players were just there and that's there there lies part of the issue is like well why didn't you just call it a fate's warning album everybody keeps asking because it's like you know it's all the fate's warning minus the center but still it's just um um it was a natural it was a natural choice the way the players fell, fell into this and i'm glad they did everybody just i thought did a, a great job Okay. And um, how did the recording experience on this album differ for you than any other album that you've worked on? Um, well, it, it, it was a little different um, going into this because I'm a little older, <laughs> a lot older, actually. Um, <laughs> and my nerves, it was it was a nerve wracking experience to 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 step back into this again because I've been out of it for a while. I had not sang at all, so my voice was, ex- you know, wasn't even existent really pretty much. I had to start from scratch. So, you know, back in the day when my voice was in shape from touring, you know, it would be an easier transition to step into the studio and get behind a microphone again, but I had a few demons to battle and, it's, you know, getting my voice back into shape and trying to get it, you know, back into something that I kind of feel, feel felt that I, you know, pretty much alienated myself out of, you know, not being around music. So it was a stressful environment at first, but then once, um, you know, we got the ball rolling and, um, you know, it was pretty clear that after the first couple of songs that the chemistry was still there between Jim and myself and that the music was starting to take shape, then I felt a little bit more comfortable. Um, And and, and for me, it's never done until it's done. I never relax or I never feel good about something until... Yeah, it's it's until your the note is sang and, and it's down it's down on a CD and and you're happy with it. So, I think that's one of the aspects that I really didn't have a chance to relax in the studio as much as I would back in the day because I was so busy trying to get my voice back into shape, nervous about am I going to have any creative uh, 
uh, is my creativeness going to come back? Am I going to be able to write melody lines? Am I going to be able to sing to my potential? So, uh, but all said and done, it was probably probably the most most rewarding because being that there were obstacles to be able to to complete something like this, and I think you know it was it was, it was pretty big in my book, and I'm glad uh, you know that I went through with it and and actually did it. Okay. I hope that answers your question. I hope that answers your question. I mean, I know there's a lot of other variables. You know, being that, you know, Jim and I were working alone together versus having the whole band during the writing process. That's another big difference to, you know, you know, back back in, uh, you know, the early days of Fate 21, I worked with a band. We had a whole crew together and, you know, Jim would come down with ideas and then we'd bounce them all off each other and it'd be kind of like more of a, um, a little bit more of a band effort, you know, because we'd have everything right there, but, uh, you know, all the players would be in the same room, but this was more like Jim using, uh, being alone with his creative, uh, creative input, writing his parts, and then uh, me being alone where I could, you know, hear myself think, writing my parts, um, and then going up to the studio and working with Jim in a drum machine and putting it all together, and then getting everybody together. So that that was, you know, one of the differences too. So it was it was definitely a different feel to it. Okay. A little bit more uh, artificial. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Um, interesting point there. I was going to ask what you did to maintain your voice <laughs> all of these <laughs> years, and uh, it's completely in the other extreme. How difficult was it for you to get your chops back up to speed? Well, um, in my estimation, I'm still not up to speed yet, and and it's um, it, it was it was difficult because uh, starting at square one again. Um, I know how the voice works, and and I knew kind of knew what to expect. But at my age, I didn't know fully what to expect. But um, when I first started singing, I had my pitch was off. You know, um, uh, I had no vibrato; it was gone. I guess that's a whole different group of muscles that you developed, you know, that I developed uh, to uh, to use the vibrato. So that was that was gone. Um, your endurance—it's like holy cow! Your you know, being able to hit high notes wasn't there. So, yeah, it was a building process, and it was almost, uh, you know, like starting at square one again and only having the memories of, of uh, you know, what I'd done in the past maybe uh, to, to give me a little bit of confidence, but not much. So it was it was difficult. It really was. And, you know, as I started singing, we, we were in the process of writing. So everything happened pretty much in unison with it, with, with each other. You know, I, as I was singing, I was building my voice, but also writing and also up there doing, you know, recording the demo. So we were, everything was happening all at once. It was a lot to take in and I was pretty nerved up, but I must say that the demos came out pretty decent. I was pretty happy with them, but this is something that always happens uh, with me anyways. It's like, you know, you'll sound good for a while and then you build up some scar tissue and, um, then you start to hit the wall, and you start to sound not so good. And you go through a period of time where you kind of like, go, oh, crap, what's going on? But then it's a building process. It's almost like uh, any other muscle if you start, you know, running or if you start uh, cycling. It takes a while before you get beyond a certain curve where you maintain a certain level. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Right. So it, it took a while before I could actually maintain, and now, and at this point, right now, I'm rehearsing, you know, um, for the uh, the festival in Germany, KAT in April, and it's still taking, you know, to sing all these songs in their entirety um, is still a bit of a challenge. You know, in the studio was one thing; you do, 
you know, to take a little break. If you don't like a take, you can do it over again. Um, whereas singing something, uh, singing an hour and a half set all the way through, it's like running a marathon, basically. Right. So that's what I'm in the process of doing now. Hence, that's the comment I made earlier, where I, I am still working on it. You know, as far as the voice right. and, and building up uh, endurance. So you don't have, uh, you know, calling a timeout in mind and going off to the side, recouping, and then starting the song back up. <laughs> well, that, well, that's funny because I just went to a Dream Theater show and. James got to go backstage quite a bit, and I was saying, man, I, I wish the songs were, you know, were a little bit more forgiving, you know what I'm saying, and had more instrumental breaks where you could just walk off backstage and have a tea and then come back out again and, you know, and then resume singing. But these songs here uh, are just wall-to-wall -wall lyrics and, and melody lines, you know, so there's not much room, breathing room here, you know. So it's uh, okay. again. I've written. I ripped myself into a corner where it's. It was <laughs> difficult to do in the studio, but it's even more difficult to do live. Gotcha. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, the the first thing that really caught my mind when listening to uh, the album, or one of the first things outside of the melodies, which I mentioned before, was how distinct your voice is in comparison to a lot of quote unquote prog metal singers that have, you know, come after. Um, after those first Fate Warning, Fate's Warnings albums and other bands like Dream Theater, so on and so forth, there seem to be so many like copycats or carbon copies of different singers, and your voice is very refreshing in that you know it is so different, and maybe that does have a lot to do with you trying to get back up to speed. Um, do you pride yourself with sounding different? Did you try to sound like someone else when you first started singing? Um, yeah, you know what, I guess subconsciously, yeah, I did because, you know, um, and maybe, maybe not intentionally, my voice did sound a lot like, you know, Bruce Dickinson's voice, um, early on. It was definitely a lot thicker and a lot, uh, meatier and maybe a little bit lower. And even when I hit high notes, they didn't sound as high because that's just the way my voice was, um, uh, being younger. And it's just, um... So, yeah, there was a lot of comparisons to, to, to Bruce Dickinson in the earlier days, and, you know, Spectre within, you know, sounded like that. But then Awaken a Guardian, um, I don't know what the hell happened there. I just, you know, we were doing, you know, more shows, and I was singing a lot more, and I kind of was finding my voice. Um, and I don't know how I ended up in, in, in the upper registers like that, Um Maybe there's just a key that the song was written in, <laughs> and I, you know, started writing the melody lines. And um, you get into the studio, and you know, you're pumped up, and you're amped up, and you want to do the best you can. And I kept on rewriting things, and before you know it, it got very busy and got uh, very high. Um, and I don't know. I guess that's uh, kind of the identity that I uh, formed for myself. And in this album here. I was just try focusing on trying to, you know, just to be myself and try to get my voice back. Um, so, you know, and, and I don't know, I guess if, if you're saying that, you know, my voice is unique, um, it, it is what it is. I mean, my vibrato would say, you know, it is, and my pitch, I, I, I feel more powerful singing in a higher register. It's difficult for me to sing in a lower register. I think it's just like, you know, if I was a classical singer, I would sing, uh, you know, I would be a, what do they call it, uh, you know, just a tenor, you know. That's just the way my voice is. Um, 
So I hope I answered your question. If I don't answer your yeah. question, make sure you tell me because I, I tend to ramble. <laughs> Um, no, no, that's the, that's perfectly fine. You you answered it uh, perfectly. Okay. Um, as far as uh, Fate's Warning is concerned, was it bittersweet for you uh, once the once you were out of the band to see all of the accolades that the band was receiving without you? Yeah, to be honest, it's probably bittersweet. You know, I had mixed feelings about um, you know after Awaken the Guardian, I had all intentions of uh, continuing on, and uh, you know we actually were st- we were right starting to write for the next album when you know when the, just a bunch of stuff happened, and it's like it's the same politics that get you know go around in every band eventually. You know, uh, every band faces these things. Um, so yeah, when I saw you know magazine articles, you know there there was. Um, you know, there was feelings of, uh, like, yeah, you know, uh, sadness or, you know, missing out on something. But then, you know, over the years, you know, I have to, I came to accept that a lot of, a lot of the choices that were made were, were my choices, you know, that, um, like, if I wanted to um, continue on with music, um, I think I would have, you know, but I didn't. Um, I, you know, at, at one point... Um, I felt like, you know, maybe I should get involved with it, and that's when, you know, the audition for Dream Theater came about. And then, you know, that didn't uh, transpire either. So it's like I've never really pursued, except for the beginning when I, when um, you know, Fate's Warning, but since then I've never really pursued music. It's kind of pursued me. It's, and it's, <laughs> the thing, it's fun, funny thing about life is the things that I run away from the fa- fastest and as hard as I can are the things that follow me. <laughs> they're like things from the past that, you know, just, um, they, they hunt you down. And, and to answer your question, you know, um, I've always been amazed too, that, um, of the impact that, you know, we made with those first three albums and fans and their, their loyalty and, and that to this day, um, but now I'm, I'm finally starting to understand that the music was part of the fan, you know, their lives. And, and growing up in good times, you know what I mean? And they associate right. that with their youth. And I never really put two and two together. Just recently, it's like, why do they want me to go to Why do they want me to sing? Why do they want me to get up on stage and do this stuff, you know? But, you know, now I understand it's like they are so diehard. It, it means so much to them. You know, the music had a big impact on them. And I just think it's fantastic, you know? And I do understand, you know? And, and I think it's... Um, you know, there are bands that I grew up with that when I listen to them, it brings me back. So, yeah, how can sure. I not understand that? Sure. Okay. Um, you mentioned one festival date that you're going to be playing in April. Uh, do you foresee playing any other festivals? Um, what I foresee, I foresee in my crystal ball, I have been asked. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like I haven't been asked. I mean, I know all the guys in, the, in, in this band um, you know, to learn all this material for one show it is kind of a shame, and I know that, you know. Um, and at this point in time, um, you know, we're, we're just not going to say anything um, until, you know, if something is announced, I mean, everyone will be the first to know it. You know, it's um, right. the plans are to do this one show. And in my head, I, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, let's see how this goes. Let's see if I can get my voice back in a respectable shape. Because the last thing I want to do is make an appearance and 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 have it not be up to par, you know. I that's right. that's a nightmare for me because, you know, I think we're all, we're all different in our personalities. But my personality, unfortunately, I like to be a perfectionist, and you know, there's no such thing as perfection. But 
if if I cannot go on stage and and resemble and represent what I've done in the past, I'd rather not do it at all. Um, but having said that, that you know, I I was waiting to see you know how kind of shape I was going to be in before the show and have that dictate what was going to happen. But um, I know that's not fair to everyone else. But at this point in time, to answer your question, uh, you know, directly is that. Um, as of now, that is the only show that is scheduled, and anything that might be scheduled in the future, um, you know, we're just gonna. If that happens, then it'll happen. That's all okay. I can say. It's kind of I know it's dancing around the subject, but <laughs> no, it it makes sense. I mean, you want to make sure that you know you're sure of yourself and not commit to X amount of shows, and then realize that after doing the one show, that maybe it isn't exactly how you had envisioned or what you wanted to do. So you're just making exactly. sure that you're doing there's, what's there's right nothing, for you. There's nothing I would love more than to be in the shape that I need to be in and to, to be able to do show, some shows and, and have, um, you know, make the fans happy and, and feel good about it myself. I mean, that's a dream come true for me that to be able to do that. Um, but, and, you know, my personality dictates that, uh, until I am 100% confident in my duration of my singing, you know, the power of my singing, and being able to go, you know, it's easy for everyone, you know, a lot of people around me, I, mean, I don't mean everyone, but even like, you know, uh, you know, friends, it's like, for them, it's easy to say, it's, you know, go, just go do shows, and, and go do this, and everything will be <laughs> fine, it's like, no, you don't understand, it's like, I'm 52, when I used to sing at this stuff, I was 20, you know, it's like, it's a, yeah. it's a big, it's a big time frame, and this is like to be able to sing this live. And I'm not, you know, I'm not being a crybaby. But what I'm trying to say is I realize that, you know, it's going to be one of the most difficult things that I've ever done. It will be like a marathon for me. Um, but I just, I have to make sure that that's something that um, that I'm able to do. And I think I'm, I'm able to do that. I mean, I'm getting stronger as we go here. Um, so it just takes a lot of rehearsal and a lot of time and motivation, big time. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, obviously, if you're a guitarist, if, you know, the guitar doesn't sound good, you, you know, change your pickups, change your back line and your amps and whatnot, and, you know, sure. maybe that'll help. But, you know, you are you are your instrument, so you want to make sure that yeah. your instrument is, as you said, as close to as perfect as possible. Yeah, and I appreciate you understanding that because a lot of people don't, they don't care. But for me, it's 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 just, you know... I have to be, even if I'm 100% confident, and, and if I did this for a living, which, I, you know, at one point I did, and, right. you know, I, we, we toured, I sang constantly, I was in the best shape that I ever was, and it was still all back then. So even now, it's even more so. So I know what I'm up against, and, you know, and that's, that's just, I'm glad that you understand that, because it, there's a right. lot of variables involved, so... And it's not that, you know, I'm not going to try. I'm going to try. Right. I'm going to give it yeah, my there, there's There's actually nothing worse than, you know, going to see someone live and seeing that, you know, they're not pulling a performance off and knowing that they don't give a shit <laughs> that yeah. they're not pulling it that, off, you know? Exactly. What's so, the point in that? That's horrible. Yeah, because then, yeah, it's just everybody feels uptight and it's just not, it's not good. I, you know, my vision is to be able to go out there and have a good time and just rock yeah. and be able to... You know, just play these songs and sing them like they were written. Okay. And you touched on one thing before that outside of the um, uh, sort of your venture into Dream Theater there, that you've had other things 
thrown at you over the years. Can you mention any of the bands that have approached you, or would you rather not? Well, I mean, there's nobody, there's, you know, Higher Maiden didn't call me. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just like, you know, oh, God, let me just, I don't know if I, yeah, it's not any anybody worth really mentioning, you know? It's not okay. like, you know, I was approached by uh, somebody that I could make a, you know, a full-time career, you know, if, right. if I decided that's what I wanted, you know. Um, so I don't know if it, there's anything even worth mentioning in that, in that, for that question. Okay. You know. Uh, where should people go to keep up with you or the Arch Matheos project? Well, I guess, uh, you know, Metal Blade has... Um, a site up on Facebook uh, under Arch Matheos moniker. I also have a Facebook page under John Arch and John Archambo, which is my lo- my real long name that nobody could pronounce. Hence, calling you know John Arch. Um, <laughs> but I think the John Arch page I'm going to take down because I just don't have time to maintain both pages. So, right. if you, if you want to go to the John A R C H A M E A U L T page. <laughs> I will try to answer everybody's questions and and uh, you know chat a little bit and you know get to know get to know some of the fans. Hey, this is John Arch from March Matheos, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. <laughs>
there you go. A little bit of Stained Glass Sky. Really, really cool track. Track is almost 14 minutes long. Played a piece of the track for you there. Uh, Since this interview was conducted, it was just recently revealed that they will be playing a date in Connecticut. So that should be cool. Wish I could, you know, check check the show out. Really enjoy the album. Should be a great, great show. Because, I mean, everyone else in that band just absolutely kicks ass very good musicians so you know um should be a great show we're gonna move forward now to the richard christie portion before doing so i do want to remind you guys that you can stream or download any of these episodes from marsattacksradio.com you can go to that site to see the playlist of any of my radio shows which air on Mark Striegel Radio. That is stream A of Mark Striegel Radio, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Uh, I actually help program that stream as well, so you'll hear tracks from all these bands that I interview. I like to you know, do my part in helping promote them. Uh, so please check that stream out. Uh, also, uh, you can download and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Again, we're working on the RSS feed, so that should be ready shortly. Once it is ready, you may have to reset uh, your subscription to the feed, but I'll let everyone know. And uh, what else? If you want to send any comments in, you could either leave them directly there on the website, right at Mark, excuse me, I was say Mark Striegel, no, uh, MarsAttacksRadio.com. Uh, you can leave it right under any of the posts. If not, you could always just send me an email again. Input, I-N-P-U-T, at MarsAttacksRadio.com. In any event, let's get into a little charred walls of the damned. Let's focus in on the second album because that's what we more or less discussed during the interview. Let's get into the lead-off track, Timeless Days, off of Cold Winds on Timeless Days of Charred Walls of the Damned, and after that we'll jump right into the Richard Christie interview.
I have a, a few questions here regarding um, uh, regarding the new album, regarding gear, regarding a, uh, a somewhat large purchase I did thanks to you uh, this past year, <laughs> and uh, right. I'll uh, touch upon all that stuff. But um, yeah, with with the new album, uh, "Cold Winds of Timeless Days," it seems like. It was a big step forward from the self-titled debut. Um, what did you set out to do with this album? Well, you know, when I when I set out to write an album, I don't really kind of think about the the long term. I'm pretty much just, just trying to write riffs and and songs that that I like and that hopefully other people will like. Um, you know, the only really uh, conscious thing that I that I wanted to make sure with this album that was different from the first album was that I wanted it to be longer because that was one of the only critiques that people had of the first album is they loved it but it was only 34 minutes long and they wanted more metal you know they were like oh just when I started getting into it it was over so I made sure for this new album that, that there was plenty more music there's 12 songs 58 minutes um, and but you know I like it to kind of just come from the heart and from the soul and I like to not overthink things I like to just you know write what comes natural and what feels good to me and what I think sounds good and I just wanted to, to basically write a bunch of uh, good metal songs and uh, and I think we did that okay and when you got into the studio did you consciously try something different with I don't know, uh, maybe how you approach playing during some of these songs or maybe how the album was recorded itself? Well, you know, the drums in particular, I was, I'm was i so psyched with how the drums sound on this new album because we, uh, Audio Hammer was building a new drum room at the time that we were ready to, to track the drums for the new album. And so right. they weren't available. And so we went to Miami to hit factory and it's a really famous studio where like Black Sabbath and the Eagles recorded and they have this massive gymnasium sized drum room that was just incredible so for the drum tracking we had this unbelievably huge room that just the drum sounded so great just playing in this room and and I told Mark Lewis the engineer who recorded the drums uh, and also mix the album, I was like, we don't really need to do anything to the drums when we're mixing them. Let's just leave them pretty much how they sounded in the room uh, when we were recording. And, and I'm just so happy with the drums. And, and for me, as the drummer playing on this new album, I think my performance was so much better because in the last year and a half, I've lost about 60 or 65 pounds. And... Uh, and I just feel so much better. I have so much more energy. I, I started eating real healthy and, and, and started running a lot and, and going to the gym six to seven days a week. And, and, and it really has helped my drumming so much. I'm, I'm back down to the weight that I was back when I was playing in death. And, oh. and I just feel so much better. So I think that definitely made a huge difference for this album as far as the, the drumming. Okay. And uh, when we had previously discussed the first album, you mentioned that it was very important to single out that this was a band effort, that it wasn't uh, just your solo project per se. Why was that so important to you? 
Well, because you know, I've I've always played in bands, and and I've always been in bands that where everybody had a say, and everybody, you know, was able to speak their mind. And I want this band to be the same way. I want everybody to have a say in how the songs are written, and 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 how the band operates. And and even though I write, I pretty much write the music and the lyrics. I tell the guys like any ideas you have, any changes you want to make let's hear them and, and and let's let's do it because i want this you know i want the the best thing about being in a band and the most important thing to me is to have fun and that, and i think when everybody feels comfortable and has a say in what's going on then then they're having fun and i don't ever want it to feel like they're hired hands you know the guys in the band I want them to feel like they're they're a part of everything, the whole process, and and they definitely are. Even though when I you know I write all the the music and and demo everything, but once we get into the studio, and even before we get into the studio, when I send out all the demos to these guys, I tell them start coming up with some ideas and ways to improve the songs, and 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 even if you have more parts that you want to add that you like, and and. So, uh, you know, mostly the reason I write a lot, the majority of everything is just because of the other guys are so busy with, with their jobs and, and their other bands and stuff, and, and it works pretty good to have me write everything for this band, and, and, and then we once we get in the studio, then it kind of all comes together and we start throwing the ideas around. But, yeah, I think... Uh, I think it, it it can only help if if everybody from the band is involved in the uh, in the creative process of uh, making an album. Okay, and the other three musicians involved. Um, I mean, you've obviously maintained the same nucleus from the self-titled album. Uh, did you put this band together thinking, you know what, these are the guys that I want to appear on every chart walls? Uh, album, or is it just the case where you're going to take things one album at a time? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely the band, and I want it to stay this way because these are guys that I've known for a very long time. We've been friends for a very long time, and I know we'll we'll be friends for for forever. And and I I, I won't, these are the guys that I, I feel really comfortable working with, and I know that once we go in the studio, there's going to be no drama and no, you know, there's no surprises. Everybody is very, <clears throat> very professional, and and we have a really good chemistry together. And and yeah, this is uh, you know, this is the band, Jason, Steve, Tim, and I, and and even though. <laughs> Even though, unfortunately, uh, because of everybody's schedules, the touring might not always be the same guys. Um, although we're going to try, <clears throat> but the 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 albums, I definitely want to always be Tim and Steve and Jason and me. Okay, and um, when we did speak the last time, you had mentioned that you already had material for this second album. How much of that material changed from the summer of 2010 to now? Um, well, you know, uh, the stuff that I had written while we were even mixing the first album uh, pretty much stayed unchanged. Once, once I write a song, it, I, I'll spend about, I don't know, maybe up to a week or two on it and until I get it perfect the way that I want it, and then it 
pretty much stays the same until Jason and Steve and Tim put their ideas in in the studio. And um, but yeah, I I'm even writing songs right now for the third album. Uh, while you know, even before the second album came out, I was working on music for the third album. So uh, I'm I'm just always writing music, and it's really insp- inspiring, especially when one of our albums comes out, and I start seeing the reviews and and just hearing people that that love to listen to our band. It really inspires me and makes me want to keep writing music and. And so, um, you know, it's the, the, the biggest changes in, in the writing um, for me come when we go into the studio and then everything kind of gets improved upon from what the demo versions are. Like, you know, the guitar riffs become much better because Jason's a, a much better guitar player than I am. And, and the same with Steve. I mean, the bass, uh, he's just a bass genius. And, and when he puts the bass down in the studio, it just makes everything perfect and, and same with Tim I sing on the demos I sing the vocal ideas that I have for my lyrics and and then once Tim gets a hold of those ideas he just makes them so much better and and he's just you know the pretty much the most amazing metal singer out there so he, he makes it sound crushing so the biggest changes definitely come when when uh, we finally go into the studio okay and uh, one of the biggest surprises for me with the first album was that you recorded it on a five-piece set. Um, for this album, did you use the same exact drum setup? Did you modify your drum setup at all? Yeah, it was uh, pretty much the same setup, five-piece with a double pedal. Um, you know, I've I've liked to change things up a little bit. I always played a massive kit when I was with Death and Iced Earth, and, and I've kind of scaled down uh for a couple different reasons um like one of the reasons is because where i practice in new york city at the drummers collective it's a drumming school here they have five piece kits there and i just kind of got used to playing on one and uh and i and it also it i think it improves my playing and forces me to be more creative because i'm working with less drums and and also for when we go on tour, like when we went on tour in 2010 with Charred Walls, you know, I'm moving all my own drums and we have a, a van with a little U-Haul trailer. So we didn't have a lot of room and, and we could only carry a five piece. So it, it's it's a lot more practical for me to play a smaller kit now. But I think it also improves my, my playing and makes forces me to be a little more creative and come up with some different ideas that I wouldn't come up with if I'd be playing a bigger kit. And But the cymbals, I, I, I still keep a huge amount of cymbals. But, but yeah, it's still a, a five-piece on the new album as well. Okay. And would, do you ever envision yourself playing with a larger kit in the future, or do you think you're going to stick with the five-piece from here on out? Well, if I can ever afford a, a drum roadie, then yeah, I would love to play a bigger kit again if I can, you know, have a little bit of help setting it up. But man, it's it's hard to set up your own kit, play, then tear down your own kit, and then drive the van all night to the hotel, and and then do the the whole thing the next day. So the older I get, the the easier I, I like to make things on myself. So, but you know, for if we do a tour and we're we're in a tour bus and we have uh, you know, guitar and drum techs, and, and I'm able to have a little bit of help uh, setting up a kit, then yeah, I'd love to, to play a big kit again, absolutely. 
So we could potentially see you like Brad Wilkes from Rage Against the Machine, just based from snare to cowbells, hi-hat, and a crash in the future? <laughs> no, you know, I'll never get rid of those three toms. I have to have at least okay. three toms. i I got to have some tom action going on there. Okay. And I could never do the... Uh, the you know the um one tom up high and then one floor tom either because it to me it's so it seems so far to go from that high tom to a floor tom when you don't have a tom on the right side like kind of in between them um i could never get used to that you know like the john bonham setup yeah. but i i've tried it and i can never i can never make it from that first tom to the floor tom fast enough yeah, it, it it is definitely tricky. Once once you're used to playing at least two toms um, in front of you, uh, I had the same deal myself playing in that you always tend to miss the floor tom when you're going around the set. Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, there's a lot of the the rim clicking when, <laughs> if yep. you're not used to it. Yeah, <laughs> but it is good for being able to get that ride symbol right up close to you. That's one good thing. That's true. Know. You know. Yeah. That, that is true. So as I mentioned before, you're actually responsible for me purchasing a Axis Laser 21 uh, pedal or the, the double pedals. Um, oh, nice. I'm so so honored to hear that. That's awesome. Yeah, I looked at the uh, website when I did the Q&A with you and, uh, and dove right into the gear when I saw it. And, you know, I sort of thought about it for a bunch of months, a bunch of months. And I figured, you know what, if Richard Christie's putting his name behind this, this has to be a kick-ass pedal. <laughs> and well, so what do you think? I've, uh, it's the best damn set of pedals I've ever played. Definitely worth the money. Um, and it makes me wonder what the hell I've been doing for so many years playing all this other trash. So <laughs> <laughs> those pedals are just they're incredible they're they're just it's hard to even describe how smooth they are and how amazing they are and and their pedals you know they they handcraft all their stuff and and there's just so much care put into everything they make and and like when you call axis you you, you talk to somebody directly that, that's they're working on the stuff and they're just such a great company to work with and i love I love their pedals, and uh, you know, like even uh, Derek Roddy has a, his own signature pedal out now too, which is awesome. He's one of my favorite drummers, and uh, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you got a set of those. And, and they're they're the only double pedal I played on where it still it still feels like you're playing on two kick drums. It, it feels amazing, right. you know that it it doesn't affect your playing uh, going from two kick drums to one kick drum from if you're using that that axis uh pedal right and that's a great point i mean i've used um gibraltar and pearl pedals for the longest time and uh that was one of the first things that i did notice that with my left foot that it felt like my right foot when i was playing there was it never seemed like i had to overcompensate to uh to hit the bass drum even though it's obviously just one bass drum that you're going with mm-hmm yeah, I mean that's you know the, those pedals are so smooth, and that's that's one thing that I love about the the pedals as well. And and even uh, using a double pedal and one kick drum in the studio, it it gets such a smoother sound for me anyway. Like with the kick drums on the album, if you're just 
recording on one kick drum, uh, you don't have to worry about trying to get both kick drums to sound the same and get the same right. tone out of both kick drums. And, and I'm just so psyched with how the kick drum sounds so smooth on the new album because I'm just playing on one kick drum and, and that axis pedal is so smooth. It, it just feels so great playing, uh, you know, on one kick drum with that pedal. Right. Um, what other equipment that you use would you recommend for people to check out? Well, you know, definitely D drum. I use D drum drums and, and they are incredible. Uh, I use the Dominion Ash uh, series, and I have a uh, an orange lacquer kit with black hardware that I call my Halloween kit, and I freaking <laughs> love it. And uh, their drums just sound so amazing and, and incredible, and, the, and they're a really cool company, like really nice people as well. Uh, I use Sabian cymbals. I've been using Sabian for, uh, I mean, as long as I can remember, I think since the late 80s, early 90s, and uh and I use mostly the AAX series, which I love. Uh, I just I use the majority of my symbols are AAX, and even uh, my China symbol on this album was a B8 Pro, which is kind of you know a beginner's line China symbol, but I think it sounds amazing. And I used the B8 Pro on the Death Sound of Perseverance album, and a lot of people ask me what that China symbol was, and and that's what it was, and it just sounds. Amazing, and uh, I use Vader Fatback 3A nylon tip drumsticks, which I've been also been using for as long as I can remember. And they're they're like a round bead tip, and and they have a real they're real thick up by the tip, and, and so that they don't they hardly ever break. And they're the only stick company I've ever used where the the nylon tips never fly off because that, right. I've used nylon tip sticks before where. I won't notice that a tip flew off, and it'll end up ruining all my drum heads before I notice it, and it drives me nuts. So I love that their, their tips are indestructible, and they just never fly off, and they're just awesome drumsticks. I even uh, They even did a, uh, a custom pair of sticks, like full-color uh, charred wall sticks for me for the last album, which was really cool, and uh, I sold those when we were out on tour. And... Uh, I use Aquarian drum heads, which I love, and that and and that's another example of a company I've been using forever. Uh, I remember ordering those when I was in high school, uh, back when I lived in Kansas, and they're pretty much indestructible drum heads, and they sound awesome. They're like perfect for metal drummers, and I use Gator drum cases. Uh, uh, they they're just amazing cases. I used them when we went did our Charred Walls tour, and uh, they're pretty much indestructible and um and i'm also you know when i write music uh when i'm here in my apartment just playing guitar riffs i use a program i'm endorsing a program that works with pro tools called tune track uh superior drummer and they have a a, a, a version of that called metal metal foundry and it's right. got drummers like gene hoagland and these like incredible drummers thomas from Meshuggah, and they're playing uh, like drum loops. So you, if you're a guitar player or whatever instrument you play, and if you want to write music and have a little kind of tool to help have some drum tracks to put to it while you're writing music, uh, that Superior Drummer is the perfect thing for that. Great, great program. I never thought that would be as good as it was until I got it out of the box. It's just amazing. It really is. I mean, it's pretty cool that, 
you can be writing guitar riffs and have Gene Hoagland playing along with you, you know. <laughs> and and the 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 amount of loops and, and just samples they have is is limitless. It's it's incredible that all the options that you have. And uh, you know what I do a lot of times is I will like the song Forever Marching On on the new album. Um, I wrote it this drum beat at uh, the Drummers Collective when I was practicing one day, and I recorded it. And I was like, oh, I want to come come home and write a riff to that. So rather than take the really kind of rough recording that I used that I, you know, from my iPhone that I recorded when I was playing the drums, I, I listened to the, the drum beat that I recorded, and then I kind of wrote it on the, the music bars for a superior drummer. And it right. sounded amazing. And, and so I kind of... With, with that superior drummer, you're also able to write your own drum beats to to match what you write in real life and and, and make it sound really cool. And, you know, and for for the for our demos, it, it works perfect because you get a really killer drum sound on the demos. Yep, absolutely. Um, as far as your work with the Stern Show goes, um, how difficult was it for you to say, you know what? I'm putting my music career aside and I'm going to join something like, you know, obviously Howard Stern's show. Was it difficult for you to leave Ice Earth and make that transition or was that easy for you in the long run to decide to make the jump? Well, that was def definitely the most difficult decision I've ever made, I think, in my life because I, uh, you know, when I left Ice Earth, I didn't have the the stern job yet it was i left ice earth for a chance to try out for the howard stern show so it was a real flip of the coin i was really taking a chance and i loved playing in ice earth and i loved touring with ice earth and it, i was a big fan of ice earth from long before i was even in the band so to to leave the band without even definitely having the job with the stern show was very very hard but in the end, it came down to if if I don't at least try out for the Stern Show, I'm always going to wonder what yeah. would have happened. And I didn't <laughs> want to have that guilt the rest of my life, like thinking, oh, what would have happened if I would have tried out? I was like, well, I at least have to try out for this show. And in order to try out, I, I unfortunately had to quit Ice Earth because it was, uh, it was a time when they were going to be on tour that i was going to try out for the stern show and uh you know everything worked out great because i i got my dream job i've been a, a howard stern fan since the early 90s and and pretty much never missed a show since about uh 95 and <laughs> i it's just a dream come true to work there to be able to go to a day job where i'm getting up at 4:20 in the morning and by 6 o'clock in the morning i'm going to be laughing and having fun it's pretty it's pretty amazing because you know i worked for many years and as an electrician and howard's show got me through uh those rough days when i was just you know bending conduit all day or or out digging a ditch for some underground pipe work and and uh you know i i didn't mind the hard work at all but sometimes you know, getting up and at seven in the morning in the Florida sun and, and digging is is pretty tough. But How, Howard and his show was able to make me laugh and make the day go by really fast. So 
you know, it's an honor to be there now and, and be a part of that. Okay. And how difficult was it for you to put Charred Walls of the Dam together? Mentally, was there any apprehension of you thinking, you know what, uh, I'm now part of the Stern Show. I don't want to sort of step into any uh, nightmares that you may have had to dealt with previously in the music industry, or did that never even come up at all? No, that never really came up. I mean, originally I just formed this band to... Uh, we didn't have a record deal or anything, and I was just going to um, go to Florida and hang out with Jason and record an album with Jason and Tim and Steve. And, and originally I just had talked to them about saying, hey, I want to kind of form this band and just write an album and see what happens. And, and uh, you know, because I kind of just had the itch to get back in a band, and, and I had written a bunch of songs, and I just kind of wanted to do it for fun. And so it was, you know, it was always a fun thing and never – any pressure on on it i just you know and fortunately uh you know the great brian slagle heard some of the music and wanted to sign us to metal blade and that made it a more serious venture and uh and and now people are able to hear our music that originally i was just going to do for fun and 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 so that makes it just amazing and i'm very thankful metal blade is a label that i've been a fan of since uh the the 80s when they out the metal massacre cassettes and so it's it never really was any uh kind of pressure or or hassle or anything that to have this band it's always been about just having fun and and uh luckily uh it really hasn't been uh you know any a lot of uh kind of you know pressure or anything like that okay and um how surreal was it for you to have people recognize you for your work with the Stern Show as opposed to your drumming? Um, you know, it's it's cool. I, I love both. I love uh, when people are a fan of, of what I do on the Stern Show and also the fan of the music. Uh, you know, and then sometimes people are fans of both, which is really cool as well. So I'm just, I'm always honored that, that people even care about what I do. I mean, it's, it's weird to think about it. I just kind of do what I do because it, it's fun for me, and I hope people enjoy it, but you never know if people are. And, and and when I see reviews for my albums or, or, or when I hear people that love what I do on the Stern Show, it's just it's really an honor, and I, I'm thankful for that, that I can bring a little bit of joy to, to some people's lives. Okay. And uh, has anyone ever surprised you by saying that they're a fan of yours? Well, you know, just yesterday I had about the biggest surprise of my life. Um, somebody who I'm a massive fan of, uh, I found out was a fan of mine too. And it was really the most surreal thing ever. And that's uh, Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis, huh. Butthead, and King of the Hill. Right. And uh, I've been a... I was a massive Beavis and Butthead fan from the beginning, but really it was King of the Hill that really kind of changed my life. That that show to me is the greatest TV show ever created. And I'm from the Midwest, and I really identify with that show. And from the very first episode, I, I never missed an episode, and that's my, my favorite show ever. And to know that the, the, the genius that created that... It, knows what I do and is a fan of the stuff that I do. It was really, it was mind blowing. And, and yesterday he was on the Stern show and it was really 
one of the most surreal and and greatest things that that's ever happened to him. I mean, I still am, am freaking out on it. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, as far as the internet is concerned, how have you ever come across a rumor uh, related to you that surprised you that you thought was just so out of whack? No, not really. I mean, it. it I think it'd be hard to come up with wacky rumors for me <laughs> just because I, I do crazy stuff on the Stern Show, and I think that right. it doesn't get any crazier than what I do at my job. So I don't know what kind of things that people could say that, you know, would shock anybody because I've done some of the craziest stuff ever on TV already. So um, I'm trying to think uh, if there's a, you know, I I don't know. There, there's really n not that I can think of anything that's, uh, you know, because, I, and plus I'm always honest. If, if people ask me anything about me, I'll tell them, you know, there's, I got nothing to hide. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that put a, a dog shock collar on my private parts, and and I'm the I'm the guy that you know that licked another guy's I don't even want to say for five thousand dollars. So I, I think uh, I think everything for me is out there in the open. Okay, um, to you, uh, what do you think it's more difficult to be a relevant musician? or a relevant comedian? Um, you know, I mean, they're both pretty much the same. It's a, They're both a form of the entertainment business, and I don't think one's much different or better than the other. I think, uh, you know, and I'm an equally a fan of both. Uh, I, that's, I, I don't really think there's much of a difference there. If you can succeed in either one of those, then... That's amazing. They're both very difficult in, in their own ways. I mean, being a comedian is hard because you're up there on stage by yourself with a microphone. You you know, it's not like you're sitting behind the drums or something. You're up there with right. just the microphone. It's very, very scary. I get, I'm a lot more scared doing stand-up comedy than I am drumming. Uh, but then again, too, you know, um, playing an instrument takes so many hours and years of practice and dedication and it's just uh you know they're both equally difficult and if you can get good at either one of them then that's more power to you it's because it's a very hard thing to do okay and um with regards to ice earth as far as i'm concerned uh the glorious burden and especially the gettysburg pier however you want to call that to me is their finest moment uh, as a band, uh, you were obviously involved in the recording of both. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, especially that Gettysburg EP, what it was like to record that? Well, that was really, really cool because we recorded the drums at Morris Sound and we brought in um, some really amazing drummers to play the snare drum parts, like kind of the... Um, you know, the Civil War marching drum parts. Right. And um, I remember Mark Prater was one of the drummers on that, that that played along with me. He was a drummer for Iced Earth on some of their albums, like on the uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes album and, and a few of their other Dark Sog album I think he was a drummer on. 
And uh, we also had some drummers from the local college in Tampa come in and play. And we set up about, I think, uh, eight or nine snare drums in the studio. And we all played this piece together. And, and that was really special for me because I played in the marching band in high school. And it really reminded me of that. And it was it had been so long since I played with a lot of other drummers and it was a lot of fun to do that the the Gettysburg uh trilogy because there's a lot of that that type of drumming on there and and also we brought in this massive like 100 inch bass drum that was huge uh huh. to play on some of the parts and uh so yeah it was that that for the the drumming for the Gettysburg uh uh trilogy was was really cool it was a lot of fun for me it was something a, a little bit different and uh I'm very proud of that album. I still listen to it all the time, and, and uh, I love that album. My my favorite Ice Earth album, though, is Something Wicked This Way Counts. Uh, huh. Okay. I love that album, but I, I, I'm i so proud of Horror Show and Glorious Burden and, and that I got to play on those. And, and also the Tribute to the Gods album was a lot of fun to play on, too. So. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I love, that was what I loved about recording that. Uh, that Glorious Burden album was getting to really experiment with the drums, and we took time on the drums and did some really cool marching drum type stuff. And I even have a song on the new Charred Walls album about playing in the marching band when I was in high school, because that was everybody asked me what was the biggest thing that influenced your drumming. And aside from all the metal drummers that I love, it was definitely playing in the high school marching band. Right. Uh, I love. Uh, I love playing the snare drum and doing snare drum solos and playing with other drummers. And, and the song Forever Marching On on the new album is about that. It's about playing in a marching band in high school and just how that really shaped uh, me as a drummer. Cool. Very cool. Um, especially for someone that was in marching band as well. And I agree with you 100% with everything you said that. Definitely yeah, is, it's uh... such a cool thing. I, you know, if I ever had the time, and which I, unfortunately I don't, but I'd love to join like a drum corps type thing, and and you know, do some more uh, drum corps type marching, snare drum type stuff. But uh, yeah, you know, one of these days, hopefully, I can. Okay, and um, how important is it for you to keep uh, Chuck Schuldiner's? Uh, memory alive. There are all these re-releases that are coming out for Death, obviously, and the one for Control Denied. Um, for all the other generations that come along that maybe have not heard what Chuck did, how important is it for you that these albums are still out there and available to people? Oh, it is extremely important. I mean, Chuck was my best friend, and, and he was somebody that really inspired me and somebody that I looked up to. I've been a Death fan since I was in high school. And I remember when I moved to Florida in 1996, one of my dreams uh, was to meet Chuck Schuldiner because I knew that he lived in Orlando. And when I moved to Orlando, I was thinking, oh, it would be the most amazing thing to just to be able to meet Chuck. And then uh, myself and Steve, my guitar player from the band Burning Inside, we were at a mall one day and we met Chuck and, and he was just out of the blue. He was there reading a magazine at a bookstore and we were just, we couldn't believe it. And he was so nice. He talked to us for a really long time. And then, and then uh, a year later I joined Death and it was really a dream come true for me because Death, 
uh, pretty much still is my favorite band, and they definitely were back then as well. And and so I'm I'm so honored when people say that they love uh, Death and that they love this the the Death album I played on and the Control Denied album and and uh, you know I've, I'm working with Chuck's family and also with Relapse Records. Uh, I've been writing liner notes and, and submitting pictures for the re-releases and and we're also working on finishing the the second Control Denied album. Hopefully we'll be able to have that out soon. And uh, yeah, so I think it's really important. And, and he, Chuck still has fans all over the world, and there's tribute shows all the time too. And and his music, even though Chuck is is gone, his music will be around forever. And I think that's amazing. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records, and you are listening to Mars Attack.
Forever marching on by charred walls of the damned, coming off of cold winds on timeless days. Check that album out. Also check out Arch Matheos's Sympathetic Resonance. I want to thank Richard Christie and John Arch for coming on the show. Also want to thank John Freeman and Vince Edwards over at Metal Blades for setting up both of those respective interviews. Remind you once again to go to the Mars Attacks Radio Twitter. Uh, Check out the new Facebook page as well. Go to Facebook forward slash Mars Attacks Radio and help us out. Please like the page. (laughs) And uh, what else? That's pretty much it. Thanks again for listening. And we'll leave you with a little control denied. This is Expect the Unexpected. (laughs) 